hope some of you feel a bit more relaxed today in this space after that beautiful music. Um, this is from our 100 year organ that recently was refurbished <coughs> from anonymous donation. We welcome you to Auckland Unitarians in a building where Unitarians have been meeting for over 122 years. We know you come here for different reasons, to find community, to seek your spiritual and personal truths, to question, to nurture your heart and soul. Okay. To be nurtured, to explore new ideas, to find comfort, and perhaps to find the answers to some of your bigger questions. Although we Unitarians don't profess to have the answers. My name is Vivian Allen and I'll be your service leader this morning and will be giving the talk <coughs> also because Randolph Hollingsworth, who was programmed to give the talk, has had a motorbike accident, quite a severe one. She's been in hospital all week. She broke her ankle in three places and is not going anywhere soon. We hope that further later in the year that Randolph will come back. I'm sorry if you came, I, it was very difficult to tell everybody in time. I'm sure um, she'll, she'll later in the year come and see us. After the service, please join us for some refreshments. It's our sacrament of hospitality. My opening words are from Nelson Mandela. He said, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. out and is rekindled by a spark from another person. Each of us has cause to think with great, deep gratitude of those who have lighted the flame within us. That was Albert Schweitzer. Now we're going to read the covenant of this church um, together. The doctrine of this church is truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer, to dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve humankind in fellowship, to the end that all souls shall grow in harmony, thus do we covenant with each other. Now. Jamie's going to delight us with another piece, a fugue from Mendelssohn's Organ Sonata Number no. 6. So if you haven't relaxed yet, you're going to now.
Thank you, Jamie. Um, we don't have Jamie every week, so we like to make the most of his skills. I now have got a short reading. It's a letter I found to the New York Times by someone called Art Rosenberg, which I thought was really relevant. Speaking and understanding another language, or several, opens doors to worlds beyond and also deep within oneself. Knowing only a single language is not only a cultural limitation, but even more a lack of access to other ways of thought and perception. The variety of our world cannot be sampled in a single neighbourhood or country. Reality is strangled in such a vacuum. The fruits of multilingualism have enabled this kid from Brooklyn to live and work in a dozen countries. I wonder how foreign literary, literary classics, art, philosophy and politics can be appreciated through a single lens, much less understanding the lives of those with whom one shares no common means of communication. But then what does it matter if one prefers a life surrounded by a wall? Why should we learn another language? I had intended to read one of Clay's talks entitled, Why Should We Learn Another Language? But after I read it, I realized that it was a lot about Clay's personal journey and I've got experience with my own journey regarding this topic, so I've added some of my own thoughts and picked out parts of Clay's speech that are relevant and added some from other sources. So what has this topic got to do with any of our Unitarian principles? A lot. Number one, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. After struggling for 15 years to learn Spanish, I'm still struggling, I've come to appreciate how difficult it is for immigrants to learn English, and now I'm far more tolerant of people who struggle to communicate in English. The seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Learning a language has opened up connections to other people and their cultures. The language I'm speaking right now is on its way to becoming the world's universal language, for better or for worse. Let's face it, it's the language of the internet, the language of finance, the language of air traffic control, of popular music, of diplomacy. English is everywhere. Now Mandarin Chinese is spoken by more people but more Chinese people are learning English than English speakers are learning Chinese. So after telling you all that, why should, I, why should you learn a foreign language other than English unless that happens to be foreign to you? Why learn a foreign language when it's getting to the point where everyone in the world will be able to communicate in English? John McWhorter, He's a linguist and professor from Columbia University, gives three reasons. I'm sure there's a lot more, but these three are pretty relevant. He gives three reasons for learning another language. 
One, if you want to imbibe a culture, if you want to become part of it, if you want to get that culture, learning their language is a ticket to being able to participate in the culture of the people that speak it. Two, if you speak two languages, dementia is less likely to set in. And you're probably a better multitasker, which means that bilingualism is healthy. Three, languages are an awful lot of fun. Much more fun than we're often told. For example, languages have different word orders. Learning to speak with different word orders is like learning to drive on the other side of the road. So, I can give you some personal examples in Spanish. For example, in English we say, I gave the keys to you. In Spanish you have to say, to you I gave the keys, or to you the keys I gave, as Spanish is more flexible with their word order. Another example, in English we say, he brings it to me, whereas in Spanish I would say, to me it he brings. So you can see how you can get tangled up starting a sentence and forgetting to put in some of the essentials. I can get to the end of a sentence in Spanish and realise I've actually forgotten the main bits that should have gone in the beginning. So false friends are another trap. So what are false friends? False friends are words that sound very similar in your mother tongue, but unfortunately they mean something totally different. In Spanish, there are lots of them. For example, maybe you're in Spain and you need some help from the pharmacist and you say, estoy constipada or tengo constipación. Well, you'll probably be surprised when the pharmacist hands you some aspirin because what she heard was that you have a cold. Yeah, constipation means cold. In Spanish. So now you, you, you're quite embarrassed and you apologise and say, oh, lo siento, estoy embarazada. I'm embarrassed. Now you're really going to get some funny looks, especially if you're a man because you've just told them you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah, embarazada means pregnant. So I have had some very funny times in my travels in Spain. We live in an era when it's never been easier to learn a language. After visiting Spain for the first time, I fell in love with the country and their culture and wanted to learn their language. I started by attending night school at Auckland University and a couple of language schools in Barcelona and Madrid, short ones, and then I completed three levels at Auckland University over three years. Even though I enjoyed being in the classes with the young people, I think I learnt more from the online courses, podcasts, programmes, and also especially my one-to-one -one lessons with my Chilean teacher, Carlos, than from attending university. Nowadays, you can lie down on your lounge floor with a glass of Chardonnay and teach yourself via very good online courses or play podcasts while you're on a long drive or walk or from your phone. When I started learning 15 years ago, 
Most of the resources were on CD or tapes I borrowed from the library. Next week, I'm going to spend a month in South America. So recently, I wanted to practice a bit more speaking before I go. I still have my lesson every week from Carlos, but I've added in some extra speaking practice from an online company where I can choose from multiple teachers, or there are cheaper options where you can talk just to everyday people who just want to be, earn a bit extra. At the moment, I'm talking with Maria, and she's from Mexico, uh, twice a week at a time that suits me. I, at the moment, I'm picking 7.30 in the morning, because I'm usually better in the morning. I, after, in the evening, I just want my glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> Um, Maria, I found out lots about Maria. She's a Taekwondo teacher and she's in business with her husband. And last week she told me they've got a teenage son who's a chess prodigy. They travel all around Mexico to chess competitions with their son. I'm having a great time finding out more about her life and I hope to find out more. Maybe I'll go and visit her one day. I'm now keen to learn some Tereo because it is the language of Maori and I'd like to at least learn how to pronounce it properly and to learn some words that I can use in everyday life and understand. I'm getting back to Clay's, part of Clay's talk now, which he gave in 2020. Clay Nelson said, Language is the most direct connection we have to each other's cultures. Being able to communicate in te reo will foster in me an even greater appreciation for the traditions, spirituality, arts, and the history of the 16.5% of the population who identify as Maori and have left their indelible mark on this country. Greater understanding in turns promotes greater tolerance empathy and acceptance. Perhaps the most important reason for me to study te reo Māori is I'm a Unitarian, committed to promoting social, economic and environmental justice. Language and power go hand in hand. Those whose first language historically is te reo are more likely to live below the poverty line in substandard housing, be treated in inequitably by the justice system, be incarcerated at a much higher rate than other population groups, have inadequate health care and shorter lifespans, be victimised by crime, be offered fewer employment opportunities, attend poorly funded schools, suffer lower health self-esteem, and be kept at a distance from decision making that impacts their lives. None of this was by accident, it was by design. From 1860, I'm sure some of my relatives were part of this, um, my ancestors, when colonists dominated the population, they actively sought to assimilate Maori, which meant first killing off their language. And they nearly succeeded. Despite the emphasis on speaking English, the Maori language survived. Until the Second World War, most Māori spoke te reo as their first language. They worshipped in Māori, and Māori was the language of the marae. More importantly, it was still the language of the home, 
where parents passed it on to their children. Political meetings were conducted in Māori, and there were Māori newspapers, I didn't know that, and literature. The Second World War brought about momentous changes for Māori society. With plenty of work available in towns and cities, Māori moved into urban areas in greater numbers. Before the war, about 75% of Māori lived in rural areas, but two decades later, 60% lived in urban centres. English was the language of urban New Zealand, at work, in school, and in leisure activities. Māori children went to city schools where Māori was unknown to teachers. In forced contact between large numbers of Māori and Pākehā caused much strain and stress, and te reo was one of the things to suffer. Back to me. It just made me remember in Tauranga, when I was a kid, about 10, used to go to town. I went town, this little town. And there was this park bench, not a park, but a bench in the middle of town. And usually these three old Murray ladies with moku, very, very old grandmas, would sit on this bench. And when I walked past, you could hear them speaking Maori, probably the last of their generation. I've been very upset recently about some of the comments from people who are against the use of te reo in our society. Simon Wilson from New Zealand Herald said this, te reo and other elements of tikanga Māori have been embraced by businesses, private schools and provincial institutions. Why is the government so out of touch with this? Year 13 students were farewelled with the traditional haka last year. Which school? I'm going to guess it's most of the schools in the country. At Palmerston North Boys High, a self-described traditional institution, the haka is such a massive effort. Inside the crowded hall, you wonder why the building doesn't collapse. But the one I'm especially thinking of is St Cuth's College, a private school for girls in Epsom. It's the top performing school academically in the country. The St Cuthbert's Haka is beautiful, noble, incredibly thrilling, all of that. It's famous, at least in the leafiest suburbs of the city. We're used to te reo and tikanga Māori in sport and entertainment. Few would be uncomfortable with the national anthem being sung in te reo. The younger you are, the more certain it is that you'll know how to perform a haka and sing tu tira mai and very likely enjoy them both. But the reach of this lovely language goes much further now. It's embedded in many, perhaps most, service industries, not just in the public sector, but throughout the private sector too. It's my impression that most people are on board with this. Whether you think of yourself as a New Zealander, a citizen of Aotearoa, a Kiwi, or something else, the chances are you value the way te reo and tikanga are being incorporated into our lives. They express something important about who we are. Why bother to instruct waka kotahi to give its English name priority, despite a courier poll showing it's the best recognised of all the Māori names for government departments? Waka Kotahi will once again be primarily known as the New Zealand Transport Agency, or NZTA. Although not Transit New Zealand, which it was from 1989 to 2008, or the National Roads Board, 
or the main highways board, which it was even earlier. The names are a bit of a clue. As a society, we evolve. Usually that means going forward. Now I'm going to share just a few of my experiences, keeping an eye on the time, uh, when I was teaching English and learning Spanish. There's a myth when it comes to language, and that myth is that children are exceptionally good at learning languages, and that we lose that gift when we grow up. We have good reason to believe in this myth. Many of us have had this experience. I studied French and Latin at school, but when I visited France many years later, I was teased by a French waitress when I tried to order. I've studied Spanish for many years, and when I tried to talk to Yoss's niece's daughter, 12-year-old, in Spanish, she looked at me painfully and replied in perfect English. She's fluent in four languages, English, French, Spanish and Catalan, and can't comprehend why I would try to speak to her in broken Spanish. We forget that these children have been exposed to thousands of hours of language, whereas I've only had a few hours a week to speak Spanish. But if you put adults in full immersion language learning, they do as well as children, if not better. So we are better at learning languages than children, because we know how to learn. It's much more difficult for people to, who don't know how to go about learning a language. Many years ago, I trained as a teacher of English as a second language and taught a class of immigrant young people who were very quick learners. However, I found the teaching exhausting, so I went back to the IT sector for the rest of my career. I did volunteer to teach English to some refugees one-to-one, -one, but I ended up learning more than I taught. The first was a young woman from Eritrea, illiterate, never been to school, couldn't even write her name properly. I tried to teach her for over a year, but failed for quite a few less reasons. One lesson wasn't enough, and her husband kept interfering in the lesson and trying to correct my English. He disagreed with the word feet. In his opinion, the correct English was two foot. Second woman was an older woman from Afghanistan, again illiterate. But I gave up after a few lessons when I realised she couldn't see properly and couldn't hear properly. She needed some help. The third was a young woman with a baby from Argentina. She'd been to school and we could speak some Spanish together, but I soon realised she was lonely and what she needed was to meet other people. So I helped her join Play Centre. About eight years ago, Yoss and I were in Medellin, Colombia, staying with my ex-teacher Sarai and her Kiwi husband Ron, when Sarai introduced us to her young friends Jose and Isabel, who were moving to New Zealand the next week. We were also returning, so we invited Jose and Isabel to come and stay with us. Jose could speak a little English, but Isabel none. They'd saved enough money to enrol full-time in an English academy, for six months while working part-time in some menial jobs. Both were highly educated and experienced 30-year-olds, Jose in marketing and Isabel, a civil engineer. Because of their backgrounds, they knew how to learn, what to do to find jobs and to learn English. 
It still took them a few years before they obtained jobs equivalent to those they had in Colombia. Isabel now works as an engineer on the Northern Motorway Project and Jose as a marketing manager. They both have very good English, but Isabel still has a very strong accent, which you'll probably not lose. By the way, Clay married them on a deck seven years ago, and they have become New Zealand citizens next month. We've so enjoyed our friendship with them, and hope we've been helpful to them. I also have some young Spanish friends, Jonathan and Anar, who I met about 10 years ago when they came to help me in my garden in Titarangi in exchange for accommodation. Now if I'm in Spain, I visit them and catch up with their lives and their families. What a joy. 18 months ago I was in Spain to visit Jonathan and Anar in their hometown of Valladolid, which is northwest of Madrid, a lovely city where tourists really go because it doesn't have you know, the famous ruins. I arrived by train about midday on a nice warm day of about 25 degrees, wheeled my suitcase till I found a park bench and could start Googling for my hostel. Google was having trouble finding the way, so I rebooted the phone, checked again on booking.com on my phone. I suddenly realised I'd mistakenly booked a hostel in Valladolid, Mexico, not Spain. <laughs> Panic. Luckily, online, I found the last bed in a six-bed six room in a hostel in the centre of the city. Google took me to the hostel, which was four storeys up, an ancient wooden building with no lift. So I was exhausted when I arrived, and, and now I vow to pack lighter. The hostel covered one floor of this ancient building, I know it was ancient because a similar building next door had been gutted and it was actually, if you went, walked down the stairs, you were in a void looking into this other building. I, it had been gutted, ready for renovations. The owner of the hostel seemed quite a pleasant woman and the place was exceptionally clean, the smell of disinfectant everywhere. I hadn't had a chance to check any reviews because I was just so relieved to have found a bed for two nights. I spent the next day wandering around the city, meeting up with both Jonathan and Anar and their families. Anar took me to a famous tapas bar to select, sample a selection of the award-winning tapas and insisted on paying, which was rather nice. On the morning of my departure, I decided to stay in bed and read, because everyone else was racing for the only bathroom. When there was only a young German couple left in the room, I started packing my bag. Now the German boy had been up on the top bunk and he jumped down into the bed of his girlfriend. And they were just sitting in bed, chatting, laughing, looking at their travel guide, talking to me about their plans for the day in absolutely perfect English. When the owner walked in, the lady owner walked into the room and started screaming at them in Spanish. The Germans couldn't speak Spanish, so I was trying to interpret for them. The owner was upset that they were in the same bed, and she was kicking them out of the hospital. Now, go, right now. Then she'd turn around to me and say, Cariño, ¿quieres una manzana? Manzana? An apple? Do you want an apple? 
Did I hear that right? Then she added, See, de un apple in la finca de mi padre. Quieres una manzana? Do I want an apple from the farm of her father? Well, I decided it was time to leave. Packed up quickly, without a shower, she's still screaming at the German couple. Poor young people are sitting there like this. I accepted the apple and quickly made my way down the stairs, leaving those poor Germans to deal with her. You too could have some interesting experiences from learning another language. I highly recommend you learn another language. It won't change your mind, but it most certainly will blow your mind. Good luck. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are dead. And my closing words, Amy Chua said, do you know what a foreign accent is? It's a sign of bravery. And now we're going to listen to some music, Chopin, by, and Frank's going to play it. Enjoy. Enjoy. 